again? Hello. You all set? Yeah, I think all set. All right. Um, there's some feedback from my phone. Um, sorry, I'm just gonna. All right, all good. <laughs> you sure? Yeah. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Craft Business Life Podcast. My name is Lee Solomon. This is a podcast about uh, actors, sometimes other people, but mostly actors, and uh, how they do what they do. And uh, I'm very excited about my guest today. Uh, she's an actor who, among other things, has uh, she's from the U.S., but she's trained and worked a lot in London as well as here. Um, and she studied acting and Shakespeare specifically in London and did Shakespeare work in London, uh, which, you know, one of the things I'm so fascinated by is the difference between the American and British approaches and styles and everything, and uh, as well as, of course, their approach and tradition with Shakespeare. Uh, so I'm very excited to talk about that, uh, along with everything else. Um, so Catherine Gage is my guest. Catherine, thank you again so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. Of course. So I always like to start these by asking what you're working on or what's taking up your time right now. You know, are you working on a particular project? Are you just auditioning? Do you have a day job? You know, what's what's taking up your time and your energy and your focus at the moment? Um, so at the moment, I'm doing a lot of writing. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of screenwriting. I am hopefully going to go to L.A. in the late summer. So I'm also just kind of working my survival jobs a lot to try to save up for that. Um and yeah, I'm I'm auditioning some, but I'm mostly focusing on trying to get myself to the West Coast. So, is your ultimate plan, or one of your plans, to be in LA and try to be both an actor and a writer? Yeah, well, yeah, I've got I've got many ultimate plans. <laughs> um, I I really would love. To be by coastal. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm keeping my apartment here and um, I'm going to stay in like a temporary place in LA, kind of try it out a bit. Um, but yeah, ultimately, I would love to work on both coasts. I would love to, I mean, acting is my main thing, writing is kind of another outlet. And I, I definitely want to create my own projects, my own films. But, um, my my main uh, sort of goal in this life is, is acting. Yep, and needless to say, these days, you know, everyone is very much encouraged, some might even say almost required, to create their own work. So so not a bad thing to have on your, uh, on your agenda there. Um, definitely, definitely. Yeah. So, very cool. And have you been to L.A. before? Yeah, I've been a few times. Um, I haven't worked there. I took, I like audited a few acting classes there. And um, I mean, I've only been for like, I think 10 days is the longest I've ever been. So it'll be nice to go and spend some actual time, kind of set down some roots, build a community, that sort of thing. And what is it that makes you want to be there or to be by coastal 
as opposed to just staying in New York? What what prompted that decision? Um. So part of it is the theater community in LA is smaller, and I think a little, a tiny bit less cutthroat than the one here. Um, here in New York. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think it would be easier to do more quality theater there because I do theater here and it's not always quality, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you know the struggle. Um, so part of it is that, and then I'm also excited by the indie film world and there's, um, several filmmakers that I really admire that uh, do most of their work in LA and part of it I'm not going to lie is I I just don't know if I could take another New York winter <laughs> well those are all very good and very valid reasons you know it's interesting uh, you know what you were saying about the theater for for quite some years now I've heard that even though LA is you know vastly dominant of, of on camera stuff obviously um, there is a good amount of really good theater there, supposedly, so actors are able to do both. And mm -hmm. you're right, the New York scene continues to be, you know, unless you're at a certain level, you know, and it's hard, it, it, it's ironic because it's harder and harder to produce small productions, but often yeah. when you, they do get produced, the conditions are, are really tough and, and, you know, and then it's just kind of, it can be very depressing, um, mm -hmm. for different reasons. I, I definitely experienced that myself. Um, yeah. so good for you. That's, that's all very cool. Um, Thank you. you know, as you know, you know, London actors are very fortunate because London is, you know, they have both the theater and the film and TV all done right there out of London. So they really yeah. get to get to do it all right there, which, you know, to me sounds ideal, <laughs> obviously. Oh, yeah. No, that's like one of the things I loved most about the industry in London is, is that it was all kind of in one place. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Great. So um, and you said you're planning on going out to L.A. when in a couple of months? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm shooting for August. Great. And you said you're going to keep your apartment here and kind of figure out how you're going to do both or what you're going to end up doing. And, yeah, um, what's that? Oh yeah. Just figure it, figuring out the logistics and the small details and stuff. Yeah. And it takes a lot of logistics and planning. You know, we've talked a lot on this podcast about the struggle of finding an apartment in New York, as well as, you know, when you want to be flexible, be able to go out of town for work, whatever it is, dealing with subletting and this and that. Um, and you're adding another level to that. I assume that you're going to sublet here while trying to, while going out there and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So good for yep. you though. Um, and you say you already worked out some kind of a housing situation out in LA or no? Yeah. One of my friends, um, She's got, like, five roommates, but um, it's a pretty nice place, and they only each pay, like, 500 bucks a piece. Great. So, I'm, yeah, I'm going to take one of those rooms. Beautiful. And it's funny. I, I was about to say, and I'm still going to say it, but, you know, I, I, 
so I recently reconnected with a good friend of mine who, she lived in New York for a long time, then she went to St. Louis for a while, and now she's finally in L.A., which she had been wanting to do for a very long time. That was always her, her ultimate goal as well. And she's out there now, and she is, believe it or not, functioning without a car. And, you know, some people these days do with Uber and everything. And she says that the buses and stuff are not that bad once you kind of figure out the system and whatever. So the point is it can be done, though I'm sure it's still not easy. Um, Are you going to have a car out there? Yeah, I'm looking into renting a vehicle Mm -hmm. for the time that I'm there. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I'm... I don't know how many places do, like, short-term ones that aren't super pricey, but I I still have a lot more research to do when it comes to transportation out there. Gotcha. Well, again, do you seem like someone who, you know, does all the appropriate planning and diligence and and is going to figure it out? So so good for you. you. Um, No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You know, the sort of cliche story is someone who arrives in Hollywood off a bus, you know, with no real plan or anything. And I don't think, I don't think too many people in real life do that, or at least not, uh, you know, not without a lot of struggle. (laughs) Oh, totally. totally. Yeah. And you mentioned about, you know, working your day jobs and saving money. Another big topic of this podcast has been functioning as far as money, you know, if you're an actor, especially in New York, where living cost is so high, um, Mm -hmm. have you been able to save a lot already? Have you always been a good saver so that you can deal with situations like this? Or how's how's your financial uh, life been? Um, It's it's been a journey. (laughs) Yeah, I, I feel like I've had to learn by experience. Mm-hmm. which I suspect most people do because we don't really learn about personal finance in school. Mm-hmm. And which is something that we should learn. Like, I think it should be taught instead of like calculus or whatever other things. Um, it's been coming up a lot lately for some reason. And I, I completely agree. There's so many important things that don't get touched on in school finance. Um, mm-hmm. Other practical things I can't think of right now, but yes, absolutely. Yeah, totally. It's crazy because, I mean, personal finance kind of rules our entire life. It, it uh, yeah. dictates what we can do, what we can't do, and so many people know nothing about it And when they enter the real world, and it's all, we all kind of learn by experience. It's, it's so. so true. Um, yeah. So, yeah, no, so, so. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I have a hypothetical for you, which is, okay. I'm just curious, uh, you know, now that I've known you for five minutes, I'm going to ask you a hypothetical, which is, um, let's say in the next two months or three months or whatever, um, you get some really great paid gig either here in New York or somewhere else that's not L.A., do you take it and postpone your L.A. move, or do you not take it and still go to L.A.? Oh, no, I would take it. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Cool. Fair enough. That's That makes sense. <laughs> um, <laughs> actors really do have to be so pliable as far as their overall life plans, don't they? Because you just never know where, where a gig is going to lead you. 
Yeah, you never know. I I was telling my friend yesterday that I just just had to um, turn down a movie, actually, which is really disappointing. But it's like, you know, I had this plan. I was going to be a part of it. And then they told me all the shoot dates that they needed me for. And it was like 21 days and, and it wasn't paying enough. And logistically, I just wasn't able to take 21 days off of work. So I had to turn it down. And, it's and that's, so of course, and that's the other thing, right? Money and can you afford to take unpaid work if you want to? I know, I know. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that, yeah. is, that is very sad. I'm sorry to hear that. It's okay. I mean, it happens to everybody at some point. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, cool, cool. Yeah, in fact, one of the earliest guests on this podcast, if anybody goes back and listens to uh, the episode with Julie McNamara, her whole thing is like never being tied to an apartment. Like she's always subletting or just renting random rooms because she's just like, when I get an out of town gig, I want to be able to go without any stress or complication. And we had a very interesting discussion about how people do that. And there are Facebook groups devoted to this called like gypsy housing and stuff. You know, people yeah, that really, there you go. Yeah, exactly. People that really, do not want to be tied down to any kind of lease or, or commitment. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yep. Got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the good news is it can be done. I mean, obviously you have to be careful, but it, but it can be done. So that's, that's mm-hmm. good. Definitely. Yeah. All right. So let's go back through your, your history here. So let's start at the beginning. Where, where'd you grow up? Um, I was born in New Bern, North Carolina, um, but I grew up... Did you say New, New Bern? Yeah, New Bern. It's a tiny town. Not many people know about it. <laughs> no, I don't. Um, I don't know it. Where, uh, where in North Carolina is it? It's a coastal town, mm-hmm. and it's um, actually where Nicholas Sparks is from, so, like, uh-huh. a lot of his books take place, like, in the area. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> Fun little trivia fact there. That is a good one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but then, um, when I was two, my parents moved us, uh, upstate, uh, New York, like, Rochester, it's, it's like an hour from Buffalo, so western New York. So, it's funny, I should have said this before, maybe, I, well, we were, we were talking off the air before, but I didn't think of it. Um, I did recognize that 585 area code, uh, yeah. because I know Rochester well. I went to college at Geneseo. Oh, you did? Okay. Yes, yeah, I know a lot of people who went to Geneseo. It's a phenomenal school. I, I miss it every day, actually. I, I, I wish I could live out my days just being a forever student there. But anyway, um... <laughs> So, okay, so why the move at that point from North Carolina all the way up to Rochester, New York? Um, I, it was because, I mean, I was so young, but it was because my dad had uh, transferred hospitals. He's a doctor, and he transferred um, to Rochester General because they have a really good, like, cardiology, um, not program, but, like, like sector and he's a cardiologist yep okay excellent yep and so that's where you ended up growing up there was in rochester yep grew up there graduated from high school there 
were you in one of the little one of the suburbs or like in the city of Rochester itself? Oh no, we're from the burb. We're from uh, <laughs> Pittsburgh. <laughs> Pittsburgh. Yeah, Pittsburgh. It's like yeah. this, this strange. Yeah, you know it. It's well. I, I was gonna say I, I vaguely remember that one. I remember like Henrietta and uh, uh, Avon. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's one with a C. I can't think of right now, but um, okay, cool. And what was uh, what was life growing up like there for you? Um, it was, so my childhood was, like, was actually kind of idyllic. Um, I, I, mostly the summers stand out to me, like, just, like, riding and, like, um, hanging out at the lake. Like, we, everyone would kind of go to the Finger Lakes. Yes. In the summer. Yeah. Uh, are you familiar with the Finger Lakes? Yeah, I mean, we would go to certain places when I was there, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's definitely got a lot of of beauty and and it, it is a good place i think uh to to be other than maybe the winter again <laughs> oh yeah yeah snowiest city in the in the country i think yeah or one of them. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so childhood was was good um i grew up dancing and i i knew i wanted to be an actor at the age of five and like, when I was little, everyone kind of thought it was cute, and then when I got older, they were like, oh, crap, like, she's serious about this. <laughs> um, so, I did, like, theater in middle school and high school, but I also just kind of wanted to be acting all the time, and I couldn't do that, because that didn't, that didn't exist in the capacity that I wanted it to. Like, I wanted to be in the movies from the time I was very young, and I wasn't allowed to. So, or I wasn't, there wasn't an opportunity to, and I also wasn't, uh, permitted to. So, it kind of developed into an angsty teenage me, and, uh, just kind of waiting for high school to be over so that I could leave and go be an actor. <laughs> what do you mean by permitted to? Like, if it were up to you, you would have just quit high school to try to be an actor, or? Oh, no, I mean, like, like. I used to, like, beg my parents to, like, can I get an agent? Or, like, huh. I remember one time, like, an actual feature film was casting in Rochester, and I wasn't allowed to go audition. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, so let's back up. So you just somehow, starting at very little, this, this, just, this impulse was in you. You don't know why. You just, you just wanted it. Yeah, and, and also, I, so my parents took us to New York uh, when we were very little. I believe I was five or six. We saw the original cast of The Lion King, mm -hmm. and I was, like, hooked from, yeah. from that. <laughs> yeah, and was there any background in your family in the arts? No, no, none. <laughs> okay, so you, you wanted the, did you have uh, siblings? Yeah, yeah, I've got two sisters. Oh, I'm the middle child. You're the middle? Mm-hmm. Either of them have any artistic inclinations? Um, yeah, I'd say now that they're older, I would say so. And same with my parents. They they both are into writing. Um, 
but growing up, it was never, it was never really a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, my younger sister danced with me. We grew up dancing, but, um, it wasn't really anything that she wanted to pursue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, I, well, my, my grandmother on my dad's side, she, she was quite a talented painter, but it wasn't oh. her profession or anything. Very cool. So the dancing was just something they put you guys in because, you know, that's just something you do with kids. I mean, even these days, lots of people are putting their kids in dance classes. It's not, you know, because they expect them to be professional dancers or anything. Right, right. Okay, very cool. So so you were able to do plays in school and stuff like we all did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, high school and, theater and church theater. And were your parents, you know, even though they didn't want you running off and getting an agent and stuff, were they still supportive? Did they still enjoy seeing you in the plays and so forth? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. My mom, she used to do costuming for for the plays that I did. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And you said your dad was a doctor did, or is a doctor. Did your mom work as well? My mom was a nurse, and that's how they met. Oh, um, nice. She, yeah, yeah, it's a cute story. Um, but then she stopped working once my older sister was born, and she didn't go back to work. Okay. Um, there, <laughs> I guess there's always been a lot of that in hospitals, the doctors and the nurses, you know, fraternizing. Yeah, yeah. Um, like great anatomy. Yes, that's not new, yeah. Um <laughs> So, cool. So then, okay, so you're doing high school, and, you know, how how big was the drama program at your high school? Was there a lot of it? Were there a lot of plays, or was it pretty, you know, was it pretty light? Um, so we would do, we would do one musical per year, and one just dramatic play, mm-hmm. and it was, it was pretty good productions. I think our choreographer was very talented. Um, our, my freshman year, we did West Side Story, mm-hmm. uh, and then we did Crazy for You, and I mean, all the all the directors in charge of it were very talented um, for the first couple years of high school, and then we got a new music director, and she was just kind of like a mean lady. Mm-hmm. Um, she, I don't know why, she she didn't really like me, so I kind of the path I was on to like starting to get leads in my later years kind of got cut short because of her. What? Um, it, it happened, <laughs> but yeah, she, she really didn't like me. I'm not sure why. <laughs> so she would like not cast you or something. I mean, I still, I get the ensemble role, Wow. but yeah, yeah. Which is fine. I mean, like I think all kids need to learn how to be in the ensemble. Oh, definitely, but yeah, definitely. But I'm just wondering what her problem with you was. I don't know. She had she had problems with like a lot of people. She was just like, yeah, she just she kind of likes to cut down people's confidence. You know, as I'm sure you figured out, you know, like so many people in this world, when when they have a problem with a lot of people, you know, what what's the common thread? What's the real problem? And also, sadly, there are a lot of people like that who end up working with kids and teenagers, and, mm-hmm. 
you have to ask why. Why are you do? Why are you working with them if you hate them and hate your life? It's just it's just so sad and wrong. I just I don't get it. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah. Especially like kids are so vulnerable, right? Especially when to to theater kids. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like if I hadn't been so um, kind of determined from a very young age, mm-hmm. like her her influence could have really had a very negative effect. See, that's a very that's a very good insight, right? Absolutely, yeah. um, good then. But you, yeah, you didn't. It didn't waver you. No, <laughs> I'm stubborn. Yeah, well, that's you need that kind of tenacity anyway in this business, to say the least. So, um, cool. So now you had, you had had dance training as a kid, as you said, and so Mm -hmm. plays and the musicals in high school, were you comfortable, I assume, with the acting and the dancing? And what about the singing? Were you comfortable with singing as well? Yeah, I, I took, uh, voice lessons. I was trained classically at Eastman School of Music, because that's in Rochester. Sure. Yeah, so I took lessons from this woman named Cecile Sane uh, all the way through, uh, from ninth grade to twelfth grade, and she was she was great. She was so lovely. She knew so much about opera, and um, I learned a lot from her. My voice really developed a lot um, under her tutelage. So I became more and more comfortable with singing, and then acting was acting was nice too. We had um, this one this one director in high school who was, she was really lovely. She was like the, in charge of like the acting aspects of the musicals. Um, and also, I, I don't know. I, I felt like acting always had come natural to me because like, you know, we, we would do neighborhood plays, like all the kids in the neighborhood and, you know, me and my best friend growing up, we would put on plays at parties all the time. Like, it was just always something I never really was in my head about until later years, that is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I can relate. So, um, and so these, these singing lessons at Eastman, is that something you asked for? Because, again, you, you knew you wanted to do this? Yeah, I I had been asking for voice lessons since middle school, and then finally in high school, my parents um, allowed me to take them. Fantastic. And, you know, I so even then as a teenager, you know, with these lessons, because, you know, I'm not a singer, I've never been a singer, and I'm, I'm beyond fascinated by the technicalities of singing and just the fact that people can sing, period. So, you know, you able to develop a very a conscious technique with your voice, even at that age, as far as singing? Oh, yeah, 100%. I think... Phenomenal. I think singing... What was that? I said that's phenomenal. Oh, thanks. Well, I, I mean, I think singing is mostly technique, you know? Like, yeah, some people are born gifted, but even the gifted people, if you don't have a technique, then... You know, you'll lose your voice all the time. You could really damage your voice. I think most of it, most of it is a technique. Oh, no. Anyone can learn. Yeah, well, I don't know about the anyone can learn part, but no doubt that it's a technique. And, uh, sorry, it, it always, it always bothers me when singers say, oh, no, you can learn. Anybody can sing. I'm like, no, no, no. But, uh, 
But uh, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm selling myself short. But um, but no, no, no question. And you know, this has come up on the podcast before, where especially if you're auditioning or performing in a run or both. I mean, you got to keep your voice sharp, you know, and, and there's all kinds of aspects to that, your health, you know, and, and everything. So, uh, yeah, no, that's, that's your instrument. That's your tool. You can't, you can't screw around. Um, yeah. So very, very good. Um, great. So you, uh, any other plays or musicals you did in high school that are particularly memorable for you? Yeah, we, um, so I grew up in quite a religious household, um, mm. side note, I'm, I'm not religious anymore, mm. but, um, I, I grew up doing church plays and the productions that, that were put on at church were actually pretty good quality. They were, they were like probably a, around the same quality as, as the high school plays and, so we did a few. We did uh, Jekyll and Hyde. We did Godspell, Jesus Christ Superstar, Children of Eden, um, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And I, those were like all very positive experiences for me. And I managed to get a few leads in those. So. So this was at church separate from your school plays. Yeah. Gotcha. Very good. So you did have you did have a couple of different outlets, uh, which is great. Um, yeah. Cool. And then while you were doing all this theater and really always, you know, mostly thinking about that, it sounds like, um, you know, were you able to still also do well in high school academically? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I well, I mean, I feel like I could have, but I I just had no interest in it so you really you know didn't I mean? care much about your classes at all you just wanted to be on the stage yeah yeah I mean I liked English class because I enjoy writing and I like language classes like I like Spanish and stuff because I actually saw how that applied to real life but mm -hmm. but yeah I, I just I had zero interest in science or math or like yeah, any sort of non-creative subject. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would think especially with a father being a doctor, you know, what, was he or was he or your mom ever like, you know, hey, you know, this theater is great, but you, you got to do well in your classes too. Did they ever give you a hard time about it? Oh, my, every single day. Okay, yeah. I, most of the fights that I had with my parents in high school were about grades and mm -hmm. like we'd have parent teacher conferences where they'd call every single one of my teachers in and I'd have to sit there and like wow. listen, tell me what I should be doing. <laughs> like, yeah, it was, it was rough, but I, I mean, like they, they did their best cause like they thought, you know, they thought that. That, I mean, and it is a good idea to do well academically, but I just, I always knew where I was headed. Interesting. Yeah, no, I, I you know, I, I understand both sides of that. I really do. Um, but the fact that you knew and, you know, you really were focused, you know, ultimately is a good thing, I think. Um, yeah. Cool. So then you finish high school and then what's the plan at that point? 
So I went to Adelphi University for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And um, I really, I don't know what happened. I just, those two, I was completely miserable those two weeks I was there. And um, it was almost like my body rejected it. I was just crying all the time. I was sick. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, it was really, it was weird. <laughs> Um, no, but that's that's real, you know. I get it. Yeah, I've I've had situations like that with with jobs as an adult, where just every fiber of my being is just going, I cannot be here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Our bodies are so intelligent. Oh God, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I ended up leaving there after after just a few weeks, and I took some time off. Um, my parents were very supportive of that. And I worked for the first, like, semester, if you will, um, from, from like, September till December. And then I actually went and I lived in Nicaragua for six months. And I taught art at a school in rural Nicaragua. Okay, so, so when, was like let's, a let's, let's back up a little bit here. So you, you, you decide college isn't for you. And your parents, it sounds like, I guess, they kind of accept that, too. They just go, all right, clearly this isn't for you. We're going to let you figure it out, um, which sounds wise on their part. So did you go back home, or did you stay on Long Island? No, I went home. Okay, and so you I started working. What was that? I'm sorry, you said you then you started working when you went back home. Yeah, yeah, I got a job as a barista. Starbucks? No, it, Finger Lakes Coffee Roasters. Huh? Have you heard of it? Don't think so. Okay, yeah, it's it's like unique to to Western New York. Sure. Well, yeah. I haven't been up there in so long at this point, and uh, there was a nice little unique coffee place uh, right by campus at Geneseo, but <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> um, that's where I discovered. Uh, you know, I discovered these kind of, you know, coffee and steamed milk drinks that I never knew about before. But, um, so anyway, so barista, yeah. And then what, so how, how did this Nicaragua thing happen? What was that? So I, I had been twice before. It was, um, my sister initially was the one who kind of introduced the family to it. She went on like a humanitarian trip there and then, the whole family decided to get involved. And I remember the February before I graduated high school, we were in Nicaragua and this one girl was this American girl was there and she was taking a gap year and she was teaching at the school. And I kind of thought to myself like, Ooh, that's, that's really cool. Like I I wish I could do that, but I can't because I I have to go right to college after high school. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. But then once, once I decided to to take time off from school and to take that gap year, I kind of got it in my head like, oh, I I need to go to Nicaragua. I need to do this. This is something I don't I don't know why. Like I, this is just something that needs to happen. And so it took a while to convince my parents, but they agreed after a while. <laughs> um, and yeah, I I went down there that January. And I lived with one of our good friends there, and I taught art in a school. So this is grade. 
So this is one of those programs, you know, people do this in a lot of different parts of the world where you sign up and, you know, they pay your expenses and you go and you, you teach, well, you teach art in your case, but some people teach English or whatever. No, it, it, so it was through this, this, um, it's kind of like a super long story, but it's through this program called Project Taco Sente and it's, it, it's an NGO that oh. was created to, to take families who were living in the Managua City dump, um, out of the dump and build houses for them and put their kids through school and all that sort of thing. Um, so like it wasn't, it wasn't like a program. It wasn't like a gap year program. I just, because we had been there a few times and worked with this project and we like had good friends, we made really good friends with the people there. Um, that's like, that's, that's kind of how I went. It wasn't specifically through like a gap year program. I understand. Well, that's extremely cool. And again, it's great that you knew you wanted to do these, these different things and that's, I get it. Yeah, absolutely. So you. you were there for how long? Six months. And what was the experience like? It was transformative yeah i bet it was yeah it was really amazing i I mean i still go i've probably been 20 times um i like i have a godson there and like wow close with everybody there yeah i've like watched people grow up like a lot of my friends there have kids now um yeah it was just it was amazing i i miss it all the time i haven't been back in a while because there's um there was some some unrest there uh, last year. So there's still kind of a travel advisory for Americans going there. Mm -hmm. But I still chat with people with like my friends there all the time. And yeah, it was really a great experience. It's it's definitely a second home for me. So amazing. Well, that, you know, what you were saying segues into my next question, which is people, you know, here in the U S who don't have much perspective or experience outside of it, you know, uh, and I include myself in that category, admittedly, um, you know, I think have either stereotypes or wrong impressions or don't know what to think about countries like Nicaragua. Obviously, we're aware of, of certain problems, but, you know, what, what do we need to know about Nicaragua? What's, what's it really like there and what's, what's really going on there? I mean, obviously, you know, you said there are difficulties and the part of the thing with your organization was to help with that. But, you know, what what in general do we need to know about Nicaragua? Ooh, that's a big question. Huh? <laughs> um, I think, um, thank you for asking that, because I feel like most people I tell who, who, um, who don't really know anything about that, they'll be like, I'll be like, oh, I was in Nicaragua, and they'll be like, oh, Africa? And I'm like, no, no. Really? Oh, man. Yeah. Right? It's so disappointing. Not that bad, thankfully. (laughs) No, no, no. You're, like, thank you for asking. Thank you for taking an interest. Um, I think, I mean, one of the big things is that the United States has really screwed over Nicaragua and many, many countries in Central America. Yeah. Um. Nicaragua especially, like Ronald Reagan was really, he really messed things up right. for them. 
after the revolution. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And it's still, the effects of that can still be felt and still be seen. So, so I remember yeah. learning a little bit about this and being aware of this. I had a great, um, AP American history teacher in high school who was, um, you know, very liberal and very blunt and taught us a lot of things. Um, but for, for people that don't know, um, can you explain a little bit about what that was, what, what Reagan did and what, 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 what that, what that was about? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I can, I can try. This is, this is big stuff. Um, I, I mean, I'm no expert, but, but basically after, after Nicaragua, um, had their revolution in the, uh, late 70s I'm so bad with dates and numbers but um yeah they the communists won it was like like Che Guevara worked on that particular revolution they had um Cuba was helping them with the revolution and they basically wanted to they wanted to establish like a socialist slash communist uh, government there for with like equality for all. It was really like a grassroots uh, guerrilla war that yeah. happened, and their victory was was kind of amazing, considering uh, what they were dealing with. I mean, there was a a U.S. backed um, dictator in power before the revolution. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, once they won, like it, they were working on building the new government. And then, like, Ronald Reagan basically did all he could to prevent that from happening. Right. So. It's, I know, it gets complicated with U.S. interests and everything, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. but anyway, so, yeah, so we, we, we did a number on them, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and we kind of smeared the name of of the the party that won and I feel like we kind of, I mean, what they have now is a dictator again. Mm-hmm. And I feel like he kind of developed into that because of what the U S did to that country. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause he, he started out as a revolutionary. He started out like he had the people in mind. He really wanted to, to do good for the people. And unfortunately he's another dictator now. Well, it's the sad thing is it's it's a cliche in places like that, and it's, it's a cliche for a reason. Um, mm-hmm. so that's that's really tough, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for for sharing all that. You know that is that is important for people to realize. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, good for you for again for you know doing something so so unique like that. So after the six months, uh, what did you do then? Then um, I came back to the U.S. Um, coming back was really hard, actually. Sure. Um, yeah, it just felt like, yeah, it was a culture shock coming back. Of course. But, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And then I went to UB for two years, University of Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, I was in the theater program, and I felt as if I wasn't getting the training that I needed in order to 
really be the best actress I could be. Mm-hmm. So I I had one professor who really who he was really in it for the art and he he really kind of took an interest in my case. I, I went to him several times for advice and he told me about this school called William Esther Studio in New York City. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he was an alumnus. And it's interesting because one of my friends from UB from freshman year, she had left after one year and she went to to Esper. Hmm. And then, yeah, so she, I was kind of hearing it from that professor, um, Steve Henderson. He's, I don't know if you know him. He's, he's pretty big in the Broadway scene here. No, I don't. Yeah, he's I'm very, not, very. I don't, I don't know a lot of people. I'm not, I'm not connected like that, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you're more connected than you think. I feel like we're all more connected than we think. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, so I was, I was getting I, I was getting the advice from him and the advice from my friend. So I was like, hmm, okay, maybe maybe this place is where I should be. So I did some research. I flew down. I interviewed. Um, Steve wrote me a recommendation, which was very nice, and I ended up getting in. And so after two years, I left UB. And I went to the summer program. I, I justified leaving college to my parents by saying, you know, I'm just, I'm going to go try it out for the summer. I'm going to do the summer program. And then if I like it, I'll stay. But if not, I'll definitely go back to UB. But like, I knew I wasn't going to yeah. go back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. so that's great. And again, you know, you always know that you know, not to be complacent and to take the next necessary step. So first of all, going back for one second, needless to say, I assume during your time in Nicaragua, even though you were loving it, you did know that eventually you wanted to get back to pursue this acting thing, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. 100%. So, um, and I'm also curious, you know, if you don't mind my asking, with, you know, so Adelphi, then UB, and then Esper, and were your parents paying for all these schools, or did you have loans, or were you paying? What was the, what was the financial situation? No, I'm very, very fortunate. I, like, I know how fortunate I am, especially watching all my friends with struggling to pay their student loans. My parents, they had been setting aside money since each one of the three of us were born for our um, higher education. Yeah, no, I, I was the same way. I, I, I got gotcha. you. And, um, and it, it is a big deal. Absolutely. And, um, yeah. and so even with your changes and your decision to go to New York, they continued to say, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll fund that as well. Yeah. Because, because Esper is a two year program. Mm-hmm. My dad kind of looked at it as college, where it was like last two years of college. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and it was actually it's cheaper than college, so right. Um, and then, of course, you have to live in New York too, which is a whole other mm-hmm. whole other thing. Yep. Um, yep. Okay, so you see, so, so you get, and you said you had to audition for Esper. I uh, know. So it's an interview. One of the things I love about Esper is. 
it's Meisner technique and they, they kind of have the, um, the idea, like we can teach anybody to act, you know, it's like taking piano lessons or, um, any other kind of instrument right. that you are your instrument. Right. So, okay. So we're going to talk about that. This is great. So you get to Esper and I was going to ask you what the, what the, technique was because i didn't know uh it's funny that it's meisner meisner has come up on this podcast several times uh meisner is saying that i did study a little bit when i was an actor um Mm -hmm. i am fascinated by it as i am by all acting training Uh, i had another guy on the podcast a while back uh thomas daniels he gave a really great explanation of what Meisner technique is really all about. It was, it was fantastic. Um, Mm -hmm. so, well, tell me in general, your sort of experience with learning Meisner and your thoughts about it. You know, as I've always said, most people, when they start studying it, you know, those initial exercises with the repetition and all that, um, gets very sort of tedious and people don't really, you know, like it or get it or they're not doing it right because they think they have to, you know, push something. Um, mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about. So so tell me yeah. about your experience with, with the Meisner technique and how it has how it has served you, if it has served you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I... I... It really clicks with me, Meisner technique. Um, I'm, I don't know if it was a combination of things because going to Esther was really like an incredibly affirming experience for me because it, it was, I mean, I kind of walked into the studio and I was like, Oh, like this is home. Like this, these are my people. Like, like it it was just it was a place where I could completely be myself and people there took acting as seriously as I did, which was something that I wasn't used to because I I always kinda of felt like a freak for caring about acting so much. And going to a school that was specifically just to teach people the craft of acting was, was so incredible. It was a dream come true. So I think it was a combination of that and also the fact that Meisner, the Meisner uh, technique is, it does encourage you to kind of break down all of the walls that you have built up around yourself so that you can respond truthfully to the person that you're in a scene with. Yep. So, yeah, yeah. So it was, studying Meisner was, was a very positive experience for me. Um, First year and second year were were so different. First year was, again, kind of breaking down all the walls, getting to your own essence, um, and just, like, allowing whatever comes up to happen, and also not not trying to make things happen, just um, allowing allowing things. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I'm I'm rambling a bit now. No, you're not at um, all. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Bill actually, Bill Esper, he he passed away recently. And oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, mm. and um, he passed away 
it was in February or March, I believe, and then his memorial service was just last Friday. Wow. Yeah, and so it was it was really good to kind of like it, it took place in a Broadway theater, and it it was just like hundreds and hundreds of students were there and there were speakers and we all kind of like shared in the private Meisner jokes that no one else would understand. And yeah, talked about how, like how our experiences there changed our lives, that sort of thing. But am I being too sentimental right now? (laughs) Not at all. And that's an incredible story. I I didn't know about him or that he died or any of it. So that's amazing. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. I assume that they've, they, that the school continues with somebody else there. Oh, yeah, definitely. His wife and all of the other teachers that trained under him are, are definitely still there. It's, it's definitely, um, he left behind such an amazing legacy that's, that's going to continue. Yeah. And I was fortunate in the brief time I studied Meisner, uh, my teacher was one of those who had studied directly with uh, Sanford Meisner back in the day. What was Esper? Oh, amazing. Did Esper do that as well? Yeah, yeah. He was he was his protege. Wow, fantastic. Yeah. Um, Who was your teacher? Uh, his name was John Terrell. Okay. It was a long time that. ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, at a place called the School for Film and Television. Um, okay. Let's see. It must have been around two thousand and three. Uh, 2002 or 2003. And then I ran into him once on the street, like some years later, but that's it. (laughs) But anyway, I I actually didn't stay at that school more than like a semester or two, I think. So anyway, um, so, uh, so very cool. And then it's funny, you mentioned about finding your group and your family there, which, you know, a lot of people experience and a lot of the people I've spoken to on this podcast have experienced that. You know, I don't know why every time I ask somebody what the environment at their conservatory was, for some reason, the cynical part of me expects it to have been like cutthroat, uh, but it never is. People always say, oh, no, we loved each other. We were supportive. It was great. Um, so it sounds yeah. like that was the case for you as well. Definitely. Yeah, I still I still talk with like the majority of people that I was friends with. I mean, we all still reunite, like, and we're all kind of scattered all over the world. So it's cool to have friends in, in so many different places and to keep in contact with them and, you know, reunite once a year, that sort of thing. Of course. And what else did the training consist of? I assume you had like voice and movement and different things like Mm -hmm. that, right? Yeah, yeah, we had uh, voice, we had movement, we had Alexander Technique. Oh, yeah, Alexander's um, great, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's awesome. Um, we had, what else did we have? We had on-camera class, we had script analysis, um, we had, like, our movement class was, uh, based on Lloyd Williamson mm-hmm. movement technique. Um, yeah, we we did a lot, and what I loved about it was that it was all directly related to the craft of acting, and they kind of assumed that you would do 
like learn the history of theater and like like read the plays that you needed to read on your own. Mm-hmm. Which I liked. It was it was a certain level of trust that they gave us that I didn't experience in college. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah, so it sounds like really good full-scale training and practical. You know, it sounds mm-hmm. like what you were looking for, that you felt you were lacking back at uh, UB. Yeah, um, definitely. And most of the time the answer to this is yes. You know, I assume they didn't want you auditioning or trying to work outside of the school while you were there, right? Right, correct. Yeah, which I think is smart. Um, uh, and also, uh, again, usually this is the case with schools like that, but you tell me, I assume most or all of the teachers were working professional actors. Um, yeah, there were several that were, and then some of them, some of them were, uh, just specifically teachers. Yeah. Um, yeah, most of them. Most of them were working actors, though. Well, you know, a lot of people say that they find that the teachers who are working actors are a little more helpful because they really get the the real world part of it. Did, did you find that, or did you find not a big difference between the teachers that were working actors and the teachers that weren't? Um, I found not not too big of a difference because oh. as for like one of the main requirements is is that you're just so like passionate about it and I, I found that with every single teacher. Like I, I didn't I didn't um I'm thinking specifically of my first year acting teacher, this woman named Deb Jackal. She she was not a working actress at the time that I had her. Um and she she was just incredible. Like she cared so much about your progress. Like she was she was harsh, but in a way that that made you realize that like she was doing it for your own good, and she was doing it because she cared so much about your progress. Um, but also, other teachers that weren't working actors were were just as good as well. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm really lucky with with the acting teachers that I had. That's great, and. Was there anything or any point where you really struggled with any aspect of the training? Were you ever discouraged or would you ever second guess yourself about it? Or, or was it, you know, were, were you able to handle it all pretty, pretty gracefully? Um, I mean, no, I, I definitely, I mean, I definitely would, would experience some aspects that were more difficult for me. Um, and then some things came, came quite easily, like voice and speech came pretty easily to me. Like Shakespeare always came pretty easily to me. Um, I'd have, I'd have trouble being vulnerable, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it wasn't, and like, yes, it was discouraging, but it was never, it was never like, oh, I'm never going to get this. You know what I mean? Because I, I was so determined and I had teachers that believed in me so much and and they would, they knew exactly what to do to get progress out of me, basically. Well, see, that's, that's amazing to hear because that clearly is what makes a good acting teacher. You know, it seems mm-hmm. so mysterious to me how you teach something like acting. 
Uh, but that sounds like if they know how to do that and cater it to the individual, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, I've, I've worked with some very, very amazing teachers. <laughs> Outstanding. So it sounds yeah. like, needless to say, all this training did provide you with solid techniques that you're still able to use in your work now. Mm-hmm, definitely, yeah. Fantastic. Okay, so you do the two years at Esper, and then what? What do you do after that? What happens next? Then um, I throw myself into auditioning. Yeah. Uh, and I I remember wanting to do the RADA program, but I had to wait two years till two years after graduation because I wanted to do the summer program, but the summer after, like a year after I graduated was when I originally wanted to do it, but my sister was getting married, so I had like all these wedding festivities that I wanted to be at, Mm -hmm. Um, so I decided to wait another year, and those two years, I auditioned a ton. I kind of learned, learned as much about the biz as I could, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it was hard. I mean, the real world of acting is really hard. <laughs> but well, actually, you're, you're reminding me now that I didn't ask something I usually ask, which is, did Esper devote any time to talking to you guys about the business at all? Um, so we had, we had an audition class, um, which was, which is very good instruction. We had a few, like assemblies where they actually had a psychologist come in and talk to us about like what we're going to be feeling when we graduate. And, like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I've never heard that before. Wow. Yeah. It was, it was so helpful because like she, she came in and she was like, you, you guys awesome. are going to film. Yeah. Isn't it great? No, because, because, as you know, it's a big potential psychological freak out and, and can, can really screw with your, your ego and your, your sense of self and all that stuff, especially for actors, especially for young actors. Believe me, I, I, I know that. So that's, that's incredible. Wow. That's great. Yeah. That's something yeah, more, was- more schools should do. Um, <laughs> so. So good, good. So, and you know, it's funny, this has come up a lot on the show, and somebody said to me, you know, that really shouldn't be the school's job. They're there to teach you craft, and it should be separate from the business. And I said, you know what, I think I agree with that, uh, but I'm always curious. So, um, yeah. very cool. So, all right, so you're auditioning, you're figuring out the business, all that stuff, and mm-hmm. um, did you have to get some kind of day job, or were you already working some kind of day job? Yeah, I was doing random gigs, like, my last year at Esper, I I worked for this, like, party company where I would, like, check people in at the door for parties, Mm -hmm. um, and then, when, yeah, when I graduated, I, I, um, I've had so many jobs at this point, it's like, yeah, it's kind of hard to keep track, I've, I've been a waitress, I've been a caterer, I babysit, um, I work at a yoga studio, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know the drill. I do, I do know it. Um, 
Okay, so any any work, you know, and what what was the first thing you successfully auditioned for Asper after Asper, you know, and any any did you get anything? Yeah, I did. I did a bunch of shorts. Um like the first year out of Esper. I did a lot of shorts. I did this one mini series that's on Amazon. Um, and uh, I mean, just like bit roles, you know, mm-hmm. um, I got a couple leads, but nothing major. Um, I didn't do too much extra work because I did extra work twice. And I was like, this is the most heartbreaking thing I've ever done. And never again. <laughs> Well, so this um, has come up on the podcast several times as well in a couple of different ways. So some of the people I've had on do do a lot of background work, you know, just for supplemental income and everything, and they really <laughs> like it. Uh, but there's also some people don't like it, and, of course, you can get trapped in it, and it doesn't, you know, lead to regular acting work. So now I, I get all that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think it is a personal preference because I of have course. some of my friends do it and they like it, but like for me, I was like, oh, it's it's twelve hours of yeah. being treated like cattle and watching <laughs> people do what I wish I was doing. It's true. It's it's again, it's it's not glamorous. Um, nope. So, so it sounds like you were focusing mostly on film, though, not not so much theater. Yeah, yeah. I did, um, I'm trying to remember. Did I do any plays my first year out? Um, no. Yeah, I was focusing mostly on film. I got, I actually got a couple of, like, pretty big auditions that, that didn't pan out, obviously, but it was, I think, kind of my naivety about, about the industry helped me get into some rooms that I wouldn't have gotten into otherwise. <laughs> you know what I mean? You mean because you just didn't bother, like, questioning it? You just went for it? Yeah, yeah. Like, I I had an audition for this movie that was, that was pretty big, and it had a couple of, like, pretty big names in it. Uh-huh. And, like, I don't know how I got that audition, because I... I didn't have an agent at the time. Like I was getting stuff through actors access and backstage and like, I, I really, I couldn't tell you how it happened, but it somehow did happen. <laughs> well, first of all, again, there's all kinds of crazy stories and sometimes just going for it is the way to go. But what, what was the yeah. movie? Will you say the name of it? Um, oh crap. What was it called? Wilson. It was Woody Harrelson and Laura Dern. Um, and like they play these two people who ha- who like had a kid um, when they were teenagers, and then they gr- like put it up for adoption and grew up, and then they're like meeting her again. Oh, okay. I don't remember the movie, but uh, those are two of my favorite actors, actually. So that's cool. Yeah, great. Um, excellent. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to hear you didn't get in, but it's great that you had the audition. Um, <laughs> They went with like a fourteen-year-old for it, so I didn't. I didn't feel too bad. Yeah, and so again, just like all these other times before, you you still knew like you weren't done. You still had the next step in mind of now leaving New York, now going to London for Rada. Um, you know, yeah, you don't like to stay in one place too long, and <laughs> as we as we sing again now, but um, yeah. 
But so what was your reason for that? Why did you think, okay, now I got to go to London and do this thing? So I, I have always adored Shakespeare and like Shakespeare has always come naturally to me. I remember reading Romeo and Juliet in ninth grade. And I remember like my older sister being like, Oh, you're going to hate it. It's so boring. It's so dumb. And then I remember reading it. (laughs) It's funny. Um, I remember reading it in school and like just immediately understanding it and like everyone all my classmates kind of being like what is going on I'd be like well duh like this is what's happening like did you not just read what I just read (laughs) (laughs) of course a pretentious ninth grader yeah (laughs) yeah and and I remember like we weren't even required to read it when we went home but I went home and I just like kept reading it because I loved it I love it and yeah, and so, yeah, I read, I, I kept, I read, like, a bunch of Shakespeare in high school on my own, and then we did, like, Shakespeare scenes at Esper, um, and, yeah, I, I kind of just always knew, like, this is, this is, like, something that I really love, and I'm also, um, like, it, it comes fairly naturally to me, so it, it just made sense to get more training specifically in Shakespeare. Fantastic. So again, in case people don't know what we're talking about, RADA is the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London, and so this was a Shakespeare program there specifically. Yeah, summer Shakespeare program. And did you have to audition or apply or what? Yeah, yeah, There, it's an audition process, and I remember... We had auditions in New York? Yeah, yeah, what? they... I believe they hold they hold New York ones, London ones, and right. I think Chicago and LA. Right, I think so, yeah. Yeah. And they also they accept video auditions as well. Okay, so um, you got in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And okay, so now we get into you know, what I I I mean not that I haven't loved talking about all these things, but as I said, I really did want to ask about this. So you go over there and you're now studying Shakespeare at RADA in London. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I assume that, you know, the Britain in, in, in London, in England, um, they have a very particular reverence for Shakespeare and possibly yeah. a very different approach to it than perhaps we do over here. So what what was the training like? What is their approach like? You know, t- tell me all about it. Um, it was incredible. It was like, it was probably my favorite summer of my life so far. Um, yeah. It was, it was really rigorous. I mean, we'd be in class from like 8 a.m. till 8 p.m. Sometimes uh-huh. later. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was very focused on tech. It was less about like the emotions and the actions right. where I, I feel like, yeah, like, you know, like a lot of American training is focused on action and then like emotional prep underneath that. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas in London or in at, at RADA specifically, it was, 
very much text focused and kind of trusting that that if you speak the text like like everything that you need is kind of gonna come like if you if you understand what you're saying if you understand all the references that Shakespeare is making um if you understand what's going on and also if you don't have tension in your body like we did we did a lot of Alexander technique at Rada as well mm-hmm. yeah so that's that makes sense and that that goes along with the general difference you know usually what people say between British and American styles is that they're more technical they see it as more of a more of a real technique and a, and a craft rather than uh, you know more sort of personal and emotional and stuff uh, that American uh, style is is depicted as so mm-hmm. um, Cool. So yeah. So and and uh, great. Um, and what what else? Anything else about it? Um, I mean, I I feel like I just learned so much in yeah. my in my time there. Um, things that it, it's so interesting. Like the teachers that I had there were so so well versed in Shakespeare. Like. Yeah. They, it, it was like they knew everything about his life and about every single one of his work. Mm-hmm. And it was it was just, it was such a privilege to, to be around knowledge like that. Like, yeah. we had this one class that was, oh, it was so lovely. It was, um, we basically, like, sit around in a circle and, like, gossip about Shakespeare characters. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yeah, like, this teacher, she was so cool. She, she was um, this older woman, and she... She knew, she knew like everything about every character. Like we'd be like, "Hey, I'm doing like I I had a Cleopatra monologue that I was doing, and um, I'd be like, "Hey, could you like tell me tell me about Cleopatra?" And like she just like launch into this whole thing about like Egyptian history and about like the dynamics between Cleopatra and Antony and like oh like she says this in in this specific scene, which means this and like. Like, yeah, just just the knowledge that they all contained was, was really inspiring to be around. It is, and again, that's another thing that you hear is that they really emphasize the academic aspect and and putting it in that kind of historical and, and cultural context. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's fantastic. Um, yeah. So what do you think is like the biggest mistake actors make with Shakespeare? Um, hmm. Wow. That's a big question. <laughs> um, like if you were coaching or teaching someone on acting Shakespeare, what's like the biggest advice you would give them? I'd say you need to understand every single thing that you're saying because mm-hmm. if you don't understand it, the audience isn't going to understand it. Absolutely. That's a great that's yeah. a great way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah, like you can't just you can't just speak the words. Like there's got to be something Right. There's, yeah, there's got to be something in your brain happening. <laughs> right. And the other concern that tends to pop up about Shakespeare, especially by actors who are very modern and very concerned with realism, is, you know, 
if I just get lost in this lofty poetic language and I speak the words in this natural rhythm that they have, it'll be very superficial. I won't be like putting the depth and the, you know, what, what's really behind it, you know, the, the actual internal components of acting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because like, I mean, there's a reason that Shakespeare has lasted so long and that his plays are still being done is because we're still struggling with the same things that his character struggled with. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's like a lot of people can't relate to Shakespeare. And I would say to them, just like, or like, just look around at your own life, look around what's happening in the world. Like the same things are still happening. Like it's still relevant and you can find a way to, to bring that to the text and you can find a way to honor the text. Um, and you don't, yeah, like you don't just have to, you don't have to do it in a modern way. You don't have to try to modernize it because it, it already is modern. You know? See, that's interesting. I think, yeah, people get trapped in thinking, oh, it's so different. You know, the language is old and it's like, you know, we, as if you're acting, you know, something that's so foreign. But really, as you said, the reason he's Shakespeare is Shakespeare is that he wrote humanity. And mm -hmm. it's, that doesn't change. So I think another, I, in my humble opinion, another mistake people make is being intimidated by it, thinking it's so different, it's so weird, you know, when it's really not. And this is just how right. people spoke back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Totally, totally. Very cool. So then you ended up staying in London and working. and You, you did a Shakespeare production, right? Uh, so that was that was through RADA. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, yeah, we did uh, Measure for Measure. Um, it was it was awesome. It was one of my favorite plays that I've done. Um, Fabulous. It was the director Nick Hutchison. He's like worked with the RSC, and he's just he's a brilliant Shakespeare academic and director. That's great. And. Yeah, he he like he'd inform us of things about the text that like I, I'd be like, oh my god, like how like how do you know all of this? You know what I mean? Like he just he's like an endless like well of knowledge. Like yeah. I remember we were talking about um, we we're talking about Hamlet, and you know the scene where where like Hamlet and Ophelia are in his chambers and they're talking and like he's like get thee to a nunnery and all of that yeah of course yeah yeah so the way that it's done is so many like in so many interpretations is like it's it's Hamlet just like basically being an asshole to Ophelia right and Nick showed us that the evidence in the original first folio doesn't support that interpretation. Wow. And he showed us, like, yeah, exactly why, exactly what point, like, like, basically, I don't, I don't know. Have you, have you heard of this particular interpretation where they're, they, like, kind of both know that um, her dad is hiding and that they kind of, like, team up and they're, they, like, basically put on a show of him of him being mean to her so that so that they kind of trick her dad no i haven't yeah yeah so he he taught us that that that's what's happening because basically when hamlet is like 
when Hamlet is like, where's your father? And she's like, at home, my lord. Like, the text supports her kind of informing him that, like, oh, he's, he's actually hiding in this room. Because after she says that, they both their language gets heightened she says oh like five times in like a very dramatic way and that's they like start kind of fighting out of nowhere right Um, yeah yeah and then and then i mean i'm paraphrased like nick explains this in a way better way than i do (laughs) but um and the scene the scene after with them together is when they're at the play and he immediately comes up to her and he's like he's like hey babe like and she like yeah, she's warm and welcoming, and that's, like, that, that'd be very strange for her to do if he had just basically told her to, like, screw off and, like, go, like, move to a nunnery. Yeah. So, yeah. Fascinating. Really fascinating. That's, that's great. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I assume your classmates at RADA and your castmates in the show were a mix of American, British, and people from elsewhere as well. Yeah, yeah. There were there were a surprising amount of Americans, but um yeah, there were people from all over. Um I was really close with there were three Australians, um and I still keep in contact with a few of them. Um there were people from Singapore, people from Hong Kong, India, um, Oman. Um yeah, it was it was a really awesome group. Fantastic. Very talented people. Incredible. Okay, so you did that, (laughs) and then, uh, how long ago was that, by the way? That was summer of 2016. I was actually there when Brexit happened, which is pretty wild. There you go. Okay. Yeah. All right, and then you came back to New York. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's where you've been since then up to now, right? Yeah. Any uh, and what have you done in those couple of years? Uh, you know, lately, any any big projects, plays, movies, anything? Um, I I've done several Shakespeare productions. I was in like a mini tour of uh, Timmy of the Shrew. Nice. Um, I did a production of Hamlet. Um, I've done what else have I done? I did like some short short films. Um. Yeah, and then, yeah, survival jobbing, auditioning, you know, the drill. Mm-hmm. And, by the way, I should have asked, who who did you play in Measure for Measure? I was the Duke. Oh, cool. Yeah. And, uh, who did you play in, uh, what'd you say you did, Taming of the Shrew? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was Grumio. Okay. And who? Yeah. And what was the other Shakespeare one you just mentioned? Uh, Hamlet. I did. I did a production of Hamlet this past fall. As who? Guildenstern. Oh, Guildenstern. Great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very cool. All right. So, oh, and then you mentioned at the beginning that you're also writing. Um, have you Have you always written as well, or when did that start? Yeah, I've always I've always been a writer. I've been like keeping journals and stuff since mm-hmm. I was like eight. Mm-hmm. Um, and I took like several creative writing courses in high school, and 
Um, I write poetry. I have an Instagram just for my poetry, which sounds lame and like it kind of is, but no. it's a good outlet. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I, I kind of uh, ventured into screenwriting in the past like year and a half. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I wrote one feature, which um, I I finished it, and I'm I definitely still want to get it made, but I kind of realized that the way I want to do it, um, I'd need to be a little bit more established and have like a lot more money if <laughs> if I wanted to do it the way I want it done. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Oh, no. So wait a minute. So so you but you did complete a full length screenplay. Yeah, yeah. That's incredible. So I, I also have focused on been focusing on writing these days along with the podcasting and um I definitely have this idea of finishing and, and hopefully selling or at least getting options, um, screenplays. And I have a lot of little ideas, but I have two, like, full, solid outlines for screenplays. Um, that, that, what's that? I said amazing. Well, I, I was able to, you know, I have the outlines, <laughs> which is great. Um, and I believe I can write the scripts, but... You know, I have not, well, one of them I have a few scenes, but I have not started writing the actual scenes of the other one yet. But, you know, you know, finding the time and the discipline um, to do it is, is very challenging. How, how did you find that process? Because, you know, a full-length screenplay is, is a bear. It really is. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um Well, basically, so, like, the way I kind of structure my survival jobs are, um, at the moment, I have, uh, wow, how many do I have? (laughs) I've got, like, (laughs) um, I have three survival jobs, but it's, like, I cater through, like, several different companies. Uh And then I also babysit, and I work at a yoga studio. Um... But the way I I try to, like, structure my weeks and my months are, like, I I try to, I mean, this goes without saying, but I try to make, like, as much money as possible in as little time as possible. Yeah. Yeah, just to, to maximize the time that I spend on on my other pursuits. Yeah. See, that's very so, smart. Yeah. That's very smart, and that's... I sort of do that, but not not quite that well because, yeah, I, I you know, I, 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 I'm sort of not willing to do harder jobs where I could, you know, make a lot more in shorter periods of time. So, yeah, no, I get it. Um, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. But, okay, so anyway, but, but as far, but good for you. And then, but as far as, like, the process of actually getting the screenplay done, Mm-hmm. You, just, yeah, so, you just banged it out over time. <laughs> well, I, I, so I have like a like a quota for how how many hours per week I want to spend on each like specific one of my endeavors. Oh, that's good. Um, that's very good. Thanks. It, it well, it's taken me a while to kind of get this structure, but yeah. I have like like I call it like a goal journal, and I I set out like my yearly goals, and then I break it down by month. And then I break it down by week. So, like, this month I 
I don't have as much time this month. So I'm, I basically outlined for myself, like, okay, I want to spend four hours per week just on writing projects. So I, like, I measure it whenever I do an hour, like I, I, um, mark it down. So I, like, I keep pretty organized with it. So this is, let's talk about this because this is important and I think helpful for people out there with artistic career goals or anybody in life, really. But especially artists, you know, there's so much that has to go into it. But this idea of not just time management, which is a big deal, but actually, like, breaking down your goals into tasks and specifically allocating you know, hours and days and weeks and months and really planning it out that way, that's huge. And I bet most people, the, the vast majority of people, I bet, do not do that. Yeah. I mean, I didn't do it until, like, probably, I mean, I started, I started this kind of structure maybe, like, a year and a half, two years ago, and I, like, I wish I'd done it earlier, because I feel like I would have gotten a lot more done. What, what but, prompted you to do it? How did you figure it out? Um, what did prompt me to do it? Oh, I, so I read this book that I recommend to every actor. Um, it's called Grit by Angela Duckworth. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of it? I feel like the author's name sounds familiar for some reason, but no, I don't know. It is an incredible book. It's about the psychology of success and how basically everybody who makes it in whatever field to the top of their field, they have a combination of passion and persistence and like mm-hmm. talent really doesn't have that much to do with it. Right. Yeah. And she, in the book, she, she details how to break down your goals into small, manageable, doable parts. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I, I believe that that's when I was like, okay, I, I gotta get organized because I could just coast like this forever. And then, you know, 10 years have gone by and like, you know, what do I have to show for it? So that's fantastic. I'm definitely going to get that book and we'll post yeah, that as well as any other links and your Instagram and all that stuff in the episode notes. Um, but yeah, again, it, it's just that thing of like, you know, when you have a goal of any sort, you have to figure out what the steps are and you got to break those steps down even further. You know, otherwise you're probably going to either be too intimidated or just not get it done in the right way. So, so mm-hmm. for you and this screenplay, you know, how'd you come up with the idea for it? And did you write it with yourself in mind as an actor for it or, or was it just something separate? Yeah, yeah. So, so right now, so I've got this screenplay that I finished, and then I'm working on another one right now. And um, I'm basically, I'm really, really inspired by Britt Marlene, Zalbot Minaj, Mike Cahill, that that kind of team. Do you know? Are you familiar with them? I'm sorry to say, I'm not. No. Oh my god, check them out. You will love them. Um, they're like indie filmmakers. They did. Um, I mean, their most famous work is BOA on Netflix. You watched that? No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's 
No, no, it's not many people know of it. It's it's a beautiful show. Um, but they you're gonna have to you're gonna have to if you don't mind email me all these things because I'm not gonna remember them. But go on. Totally, I got you. Don't worry. Thank you so much. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. It's um, they're like a group of filmmakers, and um, their films are just are just absolutely beautiful. Um, and they their story's really cool. Like Britt was Britt always talks about how she was in line uh, for an audition in L.A. and she like got in this long line, and it was a bunch of girls who looked exactly like her. Yeah. and, like, the role was for, like, a dumb blonde or something. And she was, like, she got in line and she, like, immediately got out of line. She took off her heels and she was, like, I'm going to write my own stuff. Yeah, and again, and so, this is this is how so many people feel this way these days. And, mm-hmm. yeah, the industry is almost telling people this is what they have to do. It's a very interesting time. It really is. It is, yeah. It's almost like the Wild West. Yeah, um, and... But it's also like, you know, you can, and there's a lot of, you know, the the the, the need for content is endless now, with all the mm-hmm. channels and streaming and everything else, and yeah. you know, it can be done, and with with you know, camera technology and and you know, mm-hmm. phones, and you know, in fact, uh, a recent episode I did. Um, uh, uh, with uh, these two women who are an improv duo, but they also make movies and stuff. And one of them was saying that, like, you can absolutely make a movie. It doesn't have to cost any money. It's very easy, blah, blah, blah. She's really passionate about it. And she's like, you can still take the time to, like, compose your shots and, you know, make a good film. Making a, Basically what she was saying was, Making a good film has nothing to do with money, which mm-hmm. which was you know blew my mind and helped helped push me in that direction too, which I've been trying to think about a lot. So yeah, mm-hmm. really can these days. It's amazing. Yeah, it's it's so inspiring. Like yeah, just, yeah like all these storytellers. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like and also the access that we have to them and like what goes on in their minds and stuff yeah. like. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, we have more access to these creative minds than we ever have before. Yeah. 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 Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, you, there's, you, don't, you don't need money to learn either. You can find everything on the internet and in the library and, oh my God, yes. Totally. It's, totally. Uh, it's actually a great time to be living for a lot of different reasons. It really is. Yeah, I agree. So, all right, this has been uh, an incredible conversation about so many things. It really has. Um, as we start yeah, to wrap up yeah. here, is there anything else you wanted to talk about or mention? Um, oh, man. Whenever anyone asks me that question, I, I just freeze up. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think – I mean, I can't think of anything now. As that's soon as okay. we hang up, I'll probably think of 10 things. <laughs> well, that's okay. We can have you back for a part two. And uh, maybe you also, once you get to L.A., you'll come back on and give us an update about, about what's going on out there. Um, oh, yeah, we'd love that. Yeah. So, you know, you it sounds like you've been someone, since you were quite young, that always knew what you wanted, was always driven, was never afraid to, to go for it and, and do things that were unusual or, or different or risky, and, and you knew you wanted to. Um, 
you know, so I don't know if there's an answer to this because it sounds like you've always done what you wanted, but you know, <laughs> if you could, if you could go back to your, either your 18 year old self or your 22 year old self, you know, and give her advice now, something you know now that you didn't know then, what would it be? Oof. Um, probably just not to be so affected by other people's opinions, because, like, mm. other people's opinions don't, they don't really matter. Like, you can still do whatever you want to do, you know? Like, like it, it, it's true what they say that, like, you, you shouldn't really talk about your dreams to small-minded people because, you know, they're just going to put some bad energy on it and you don't need that, like, you know? Gosh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah. And also, there's a lot of people who are very busy talking about what they claim they're going to do, but they never actually do it. Um, mm -hmm. so, no, that there's that too, but yeah, Definitely. absolutely. Well, that's a great, um, piece of wisdom and a great note to go out on. Um, so as I said, we're going to, we'll post any links or social media or anything that you like in the episode notes. Um, you mentioned your poetry Instagram. Do you want to share that? And do you want to share your website or anything as well? Sure. Yeah, Definitely. Yeah, so if you just tell everybody what it is now, and I'll also oh, right post now. it in the uh, episode notes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so my poetry Instagram is K underscore poetry. Mm -hmm. um, my, my normal Instagram is Catherine underscore gauge one. Mm -hmm. um, my website is just CatherineGage.com. Mm -hmm. um, I... I think I think that's everything. I mean, I have a Twitter, but I don't really tweet that okay. often. All right, and again, just I mean, we're gonna post it. But if people are curious, that's spelled K A T H E R I N E, and the last name yeah. is G A G E. Um, yeah. So we're gonna post all that uh, and any other references we made uh, in the episode notes. Um, Catherine, mm -hmm. this was, uh, super fun and super inspiring. Um, I think you're kicking ass and I look forward to hearing about, you know, you coming back and hearing about your continued success and adventures and, you know, how it goes for you in LA and all that stuff. I wish you, uh, incredible success with everything. Oh my God. Thank you so much. It's so good to like, to hear from someone else that, that they think I'm doing well because... <laughs> You know, like self motivation, like it's important, but but it is it's good to get the motivation of others as well. <laughs> yeah, well, again, it it sounds like you've always been very brave and and very determined, and you know that's oh, that's that's you. you know that's a huge part of it. Um, not that thank I'm so much. No, no, I'm just, listen, I'm just <laughs> just just calling it as I see it, so to speak. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, so yes, thank you. And for everyone listening, um, if you want to reach me about the podcast for any reason, you can email craft business life podcast. That's all one word craft business life podcast at gmail.com. And this is new. It's the first time I've talked about it on the podcast, but I do have a GoFundMe now as well. Um, this podcast is and will always be completely free. Uh, but if you want to support it, you can do so via the GoFundMe. Uh, it's just GoFundMe.com slash Craft Business Life Podcast. 
and I'll post that link in the notes, of course, as well. And um, that is it. Catherine, thank you again. Uh, thank you to everybody listening. And until next time, bye-bye.